If you would please take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the Song of Songs, also known as the Song of Solomon. Today is Valentine's Day, so we're going to take some moments and look at the theme of love. True love, though. Sometimes as Christians, we're kind of skeptical of Valentine's Day, aren't we? This guy is. I, I, I go out and about, and I see all kinds of things about Valentine's Day, and it's either super commercialized or super sensationalized or sexualized, and it's very disturbing. And you might think, what would I have anything to do with that holiday? Well, and because of the fact that that is the world in which we live, and by the way, it is not particularly all that unique to our time and place. It's been a problem throughout the centuries. It's important for us to stop in light of all of that and look to God's word to see what is real love, what is true love. So if you might, we all know this, but you wouldn't know it going into the grocery store. You can't buy love. Did you know that? But boy, you sure can buy chocolate and hearts and trinkets and all kinds of goodies as if it's all about buying love, right? But of course you can't buy love, but yet it seems like it's all there. Oh, you know how much flowers cost in February? It's amazing. And we say, of course, you can't buy love, but it seems so often that people try to buy love. We see so oftentimes wickedness lifted up and exalted and displayed as love. Isn't that disturbing? It is. So much so that it is, in some regards, threatens what is true love. And you say, oh, no, nothing can threaten true love. Oh, you'd be right. Nothing can. In fact, that's one of the things we're going to learn about here today. But I will tell you, our adversary, the devil, who is as a roaring lion, he walketh about seeking whom he may devour. And he is very determined to meddle in love and all the aspects of love to destroy its meaning, to destroy its significance, to destroy relationships, to destroy perspectives of ourselves, perspectives of marriage, perspectives of women and men, and perspectives of God. So when we ask this, what is love? Well, we've turned to the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. And we've before talked a little bit about Solomon, and we've talked a little bit about this book. I'd love to take this book and go through it verse by verse and chapter by chapter, but you know that's something we can't really do to the degree we need to on a Sunday morning with this crowd, because this book is quite intense. But that shouldn't cause us to shy away from it. In fact, I would encourage you to to. Study it together as a husband and wife and to seek resources that can help you to do that, especially as husbands and wives. And if you're interested in a Bible study, let me know. I'd like to know how many people are interested in a Bible study. Um, my wife and I are somewhat um, uncomfortable at the prospect of leading such a Bible study because it does indeed get rather unique as we look at the book. But it's a book that we ought not to neglect. It is a very fascinating and important book. Some time ago, we've looked at little pieces of this. And uh, today, I'd like to look at actually what is the climax of the book. The climax of the book. Look with me at two verses in the Song of Songs, chapter 8. Chapter 8, verses 6 and 7, give to us a great declaration of the significance of marriage and the strength and power of love. The bride is speaking, and she says, Set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm. For love 
is strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. The coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath the most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would utterly be contemned. A declaration of the significance of marriage and the power of love. Father, thank you for preserving for us and inspiring for us this song. Lord, as we open your word today, I pray that you would teach us. Help us to understand. Help us to understand what you have revealed in these two short verses, but all that is included in it. Lord, I pray that it might be a challenge to each married couple here this morning, those about to be married, that we would have a perspective that sees our relationship and sees love as you see it. And Lord, I pray for all the others, whether young or old, that they too would understand and see love, that we all might know that in spite of what the world around us teaches us or shows us or says to us, whether explicitly or indirectly, that we would have a perspective that is rooted and grounded in your word. And so, Father, teach us now, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. The Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. That's the way this song starts off. And we know about Solomon. He's a guy who had some really big problems, isn't he? He had some really big problems as it came and related to marriage. And we're not going to take all the time to review that here this morning, lest it distract from here this significant passage we want to look at. But it's important to set it in mind. It's also important for us to acknowledge how the book is laid out and how we need to understand it and to interpret it. There's different ways that people have approached this book. Actually, um, I was just reading a commentary yesterday and had to laugh out loud. It was hilarious. As one of, the, one of the popular, actually, ways of looking at this book is to look at the entire book as an allegory and to take every single little aspect and to turn it into an allegory. And it gets really, really weird and and strange, and has no basis in anything. That doesn't mean that there's not a point of allegorism in it. For In fact, the book has many situations where it uses euphemisms, it uses different ways of saying things that are not explicit and direct, whereas in other occasions it is very explicit and direct. But the whole book is not to be understood as a great big allegory. The book is about marriage. It is about human love and the relationship between a husband and a wife. There are parts of it that are glorious and wonderful, and there are parts of it that are difficult. And husbands and wives can learn from what is set forth and taught in these passages. Some of it you may read and turn red. Just no doubt about it. You, you might be, this is uncomfortable. This is embarrassing. And some of it, by the way, I, I, I will say this. Some have said in the past that you, you, you children can't read this book. And I found it interesting because as we read through our Bibles with our kids, I, I find that as a child who has an innocence, reads some of this, it goes over their head. And that's really incredible. It's what I believe one of the evidences of the Holy Spirit having inspired it. Not only inspired the words itself, but also the Holy Spirit working in the hearts and minds of the people reading it. It doesn't mean that the teenager should spend all of his devotions trying to study Song of Solomon. That's not what I mean. But the simple reading through it and a regular routine of reading the Bible is, is something very good. And I think that it is very important, especially in light of the fact that we live in a, a, a sensationalized and crazy world that bombards us with illicit, immoral, and evil love all the time. 
and to see this perspective as one grows and is exposed to ungodliness and wickedness, I'm convinced that the Song of Solomon is a key book, a song for renewing one's mind when evil has been exposed, when they've seen evil, to see, well, what is God's design? And the Song of Solomon is very important for that. And so when we approach the book of Song of Solomon, we look at it as, as truly to be understood as a, not a manual, but a song that has teaching pieces to it in celebration of marriage, human love between a husband and a wife. Now, there's another part of this that's a little bit like um, the interpretation method of allegory, but is not the same. And it's what we call typology. You know what that is? Typology is when we find things in the Old Testament particularly, but not necessarily limited to the Old Testament, that are types or pictures of truths and things taught in the New Testament. It's different than the allegorical interpretation. We don't just take it and make up allegories to explain away or to make up stories or interpretations from the text that are allegories. A typology may have a degree of allegory, but it is first and foremost an illustration of something taught in the New Testament or in the Christian life, even, in fact, to those who are unmarried. Why is that? Well, we're told very explicitly in Ephesians chapter 5 that marriage... That is the relationship between a husband and a wife is a picture, is an illustration that illustrates the relationship between Christ and the church. It is a very important relationship because it's the picture. It's an illustration to the world. When the world sees a Christian marriage, they should see a relationship that every believer can and should have with Jesus Christ, an intimate and close and a united relationship. And so when we look at the Song of Solomon, knowing that truth, we know that we will find types. We will find illustrations in marriage that can be applied generally to the believer in his or her relationship with Jesus Christ. But at the same time, we have to be careful. First of all, we can't get so caught up in the typology in relation to Christ and the church that we neglect the primary understanding of it as being between a husband and wife in a real human marriage of love. That is the primary focus of the book. And the typology is secondary. Furthermore, and the reason why the typology is significant to be secondary is because we deal with some things in here that are not ideal that are not ideal. We're dealing in the couple here in the book is working through some of those things. And that would be a breakdown of the type, especially when it's dealing with the husband. Because with Christ and the church, we've got a perfect husband, don't we? Jesus Christ is perfect. Absolutely. And so when we have that, it's, it's a relationship. And so the typology here doesn't always pull together, except in this point as a contrast when we see the failures of the groom here in the Song of Solomon, we can see and understand and take heed and say, now, especially from the New Testament age looking back, how do we take this now and how do we take heed and learn from the failure of Solomon, both as listed in this song as well as in his life in general? And so that's an important piece of it. So with that kind of as an introduction, which is an important part of foundation to understanding the book, let's look at this climax. This climax is dealing with marriage, and it moves on into love. The bride is speaking. Look with me. Chapter 8, verse 6. She says to her groom, set me as a seal upon thine heart as a seal upon thine arm. Now, what's she talking about? Take a moment with me and consider the, ideal, the idea of a seal or a signet ring. 
You need a signet ring or a piece of engraved um, metal that was used to create a seal, whether in clay or in wax or in other soft substance that would then harden later. And so she is saying here, I want to be set as a seal upon thine heart and upon thy arm. Well, what did they use a seal for in the ancient world? They used a seal to seal things to verify that it was authentic. They used a seal to mark ownership. You'll see in many occasions where property from the ancient world, whether it's clay pots or other things, will have a seal put into it. Seals were very common. We don't use seals often today. Actually, in some parts of the world, they still do use seals. In many parts of Asia, they still use a seal as your signature. If you're going to make an identification or a mark of your identity or a verification of your identity, you need to have your seal with you to do that. Even, in fact, we have that in many official documents and other things like that, even here in the United States. You go get a birth certificate, and they seal the birth certificate, verifying it as authentic, verifying it as official, verifying it as important. She's looking here, and she's not just asking to be sealed. She wants to be the seal. You see, she wants to be identified with him. The seal was an instrument of identification, official identification. And here as she looks to this marriage with her husband, she wants to be completely identified with him. As he would carry a signet ring on his right hand, or he would carry it in a string or a, or a necklace around his neck. She wants to be like that. And this was important. And we don't think of this because we don't use seals in our culture. But if we were to go back to the Old Testament, in Jeremiah chapter 22, the Lord uses this imagery and this idea of a signet in dealing with a very negative situation. Israel has turned from the Lord. Judah has turned from the Lord. Judah is set up for judgment. The king, Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, is the king of Judah. And the Lord, in trying to communicate how terrible the situation has become, and how much his protection and his care for the king and for the nation has gone away. He says that though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet upon my right hand, yet would I pluck thee hence and will give thee into the hand of them that seek thy life and into the hand of those whose face thou fearest, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans, and I will cast thee out and thy mother that bear thee into another country where you were not born, and there ye shall die. And you might be sitting out there saying, wait a minute, preacher, I thought this was supposed to be a nice romantic talk about love. That didn't sound very nice. Well, we need this to be able to understand the significance. Nobody would think of doing that with their signet, with their seal. It was their identification. You would never think of taking it and plucking it off and casting it away from you. No, no, no. It was, it was your guarded possession. It was your guarded treasure. It was your identity. It's what you marked your most valuable treasures with. You would never cast it away from you. It's unthinkable. That's why God used it as an illustration to Coniah to show and to wake up Coniah as to how serious what he was doing was. He uses this illustration that would be unthinkable. And because it is so unthinkable to the Hebrew mind is part of the reason why she is saying, make me your signet. Make me your seal upon your heart and upon your arm. Why she say your heart, your arm? Well, two reasons. One, when they would actually literally physically have a seal or a signet ring, they would either hang it around their neck 
near their heart, or they would take it and place it upon their right hand, on their hand, which is tied to the arm. And what's the significance of this? Well, besides the actual side, the heart and the arm carry other symbolism throughout the Hebrew Old Testament. The heart, the heart is, is the place where we have our emotion. It's where we have will. It's the seat of our thoughts. In fact, it is out of the heart we find out in the New Testament, the treasure of our heart, that our mouth speaks. Actions come forth out of our heart. Now think of this. If your wife, husbands, is your seal of your heart, you're going to guard your heart, aren't you? You're going to be careful what you let into your heart and what comes out of your heart. You're going to give your heart to your wife. She's going to control the signet. She's going to control the ownership. She's the one who's identifying with it. This is illustrated in some ways in Matthew chapter 18, where Jesus describes marriage as a man leaving his father and his mother and being joined to his wife. That's what she's looking for here. That oneness. Her identity. His identity. In Haggai chapter 2 and verse 23, the idea of a signet is used in a positive way. Just as we have the problem with Coniah and the unthinkable thought of him as being as a signet cast away, when the captivity returns, there's Zerubbabel who's, who's there kind of in line for the king. And the Lord speaks of him as his servant. And the Lord said, I will make thee, Zerubbabel, as a signet for I have chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. The Lord is choosing Zerubbabel, and he is identifying him. That's what the bride is looking for here from her groom, is that identifying with him in his heart, but also in his arm. And all throughout the Hebrew Bible, the arm is a symbol of one's strength and might. Now think of that, wives. To be the signet, the owner of your husband's heart and of his might. That's asking for a lot, you might say. No, but yes, it is a lot. But it's the significance of marriage. That's how important marriage is. It's very very important. Speaking of typology, you realize the typology in this relating to the Christian life? Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 5 is where we learn that marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church, isn't it? And so we have this concept and idea of a seal in Ephesians chapter 5. Or I'm not sorry, not chapter 5, chapter 1. It tells us there in verse 12 that we, speaking of believers, should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ. You see, God wants us as believers to be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance unto the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of of his glory. You see, we as believers, when we trust in Christ, 
we become the seal. But yet, do you see how it's reversed? His Holy Spirit seals us. We become as his treasured possession. And not only is it just a mark of any kind, it is actually the Holy Spirit of God himself that seals us. That's a huge deal. For in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 21 and 22, it tells us, Now he which establisheth us with you in Christ, this union with Christ, and hath anointed us is God. God's the one who's brought this about in the Christian's life, who hath also sealed us and given us the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. It's a relationship that's guaranteed. That's what the bride's looking for in the Song of Solomon as well. She's looking for a relationship that's vital and real and guaranteed. She's asking for something really big. So you know what she does next? She goes on to explain why this is so important. She speaks of the strength of love of the jealousy of love, of the vitality and source of love, of the unquenchable nature of true love, and the value of true love. The strength of love. Hereafter asking for this, she knows that this is impossible without real love. And we're talking about real love. And so she goes on and she makes this statement. For love is strong as death. Go home and write that on your Valentine's Day card. You might say, what's so romantic about that? That doesn't sound like a Valentine's Day card. Well, it is. For love is strong as Death. Let's think about death for a moment. Have you ever known anyone to resist death? Leaving Jesus Christ out of the picture for just a moment. Have you ever known anyone who had the strength to overcome death? Death is pretty strong, isn't it? It's pretty universal. It's irresistible. It's strong. She says, you know how strong death is? That's how strong love must be. Wow. But you know what? Love is actually stronger than death. You know how I know? Bouncing back to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 where we're told that marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. In Ephesians chapter 5, husbands are commanded to love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. This is a love that is so strong that one is willing to die for it. That's pretty strong. A love that is, one is ready to die for it. That's what Jesus did and in fact, to just give you a little glimpse, we don't have time to go into all of it, but in Romans chapter 8, it tells us that death is one of the things that can't separate us from the love of God. And so we've got here love that is as strong as death. And death is awful powerful. It's awful universal. It's awful irresistible. But love is better. 
love is greater. And in fact, the kind of love that's needed in this marriage needs to be that kind of love. That's the kind of love she's asking for. So when you write that on your Valentine's Day card, that's what you're saying. How about husbands? We write it. I want to love you with love that's stronger than death. When you know what it means, that's a pretty special valentine, isn't it? One who gives himself for the other. Love is strong. Love is strong. But then, it tells us that jealousy is cruel as the grave. You might be thinking, this poor lady is morbid. Strong as death. Now jealousy cruel as the grave. What's she talking about here? Well, it's very similarly related as to her perspective. But she's speaking of jealousy. Being jealous is something that in our modern world is greatly understood. In the Bible, jealousy had two aspects and perspectives. One that was evil, controlling, manipulative, um, on the verge of envy. And one side that is righteous. Righteous, that is, an exclusive desire for another. And a relationship that is exclusive. In fact, jealousy is modeled for us by God. In Exodus chapter 20, the Ten Commandments, God gave the Ten Commandments declaring that he is their God. There is none other before him that they are to have no other gods. They're not to make any graven images. And he makes this reason why. He says, I am a jealous God. Not a jealous God who's wanting to manipulate his people. God never manipulated his people. He's not one who has jealousy to oppress his people. This is not jealousy of oppression, but jealousy of esteem. It's not jealousy of manipulation, but of care and protection. And it is a jealousy in the marriage relationship that is mutual. It is a passionate, zealous desire that one has for another, for their good, for their protection, for all of them. And it is something that is exclusive. It's also tied a little bit into the idea of the seal. She's looking for that seal because that seal means he's mine and he ain't nobody else's. Hear the jealousy. In order for that seal to work, there has to be a righteous, a godly jealousy. But what does she mean that it's as, as cruel as the grave? The grave, Sheol, the place where the dead are. Have you ever known the grave to give back someone? Now, leave the great exceptions out. You think about it. I want my grandpa back. Grave, give me my grandpa back. No, no, no. The grave is jealous of my grandpa. He got him. He isn't giving him back. You see the picture? It's, it's, it's in, when we look at it in life, we look at the grave as a jealousy of cruelty. Like, oh, grave, come on. My grandpa, my mom, my loved one, my spouse, give her back to me. Now the grave's jealous, is not ready to share at all. And so she's taking this morbid, acknowledged morbid, picture and illustration of the grave and how the grave is jealous and saying this is the kind of jealousy that is needed in order for this sealing to work, for this signet upon your heart and upon your arm to work. It may be perceived by others as cruel. Tough luck. She doesn't care. Because that's the way it is. She wants to be his and his alone and her to be his and his alone. It's the way that it works. It's stern. It's unrelenting. Proverbs chapter 6 speaks of this in a situation where there is unfaithfulness, adultery. 
Proverbs chapter 6, it says, But whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He doesn't understand jealousy at all. And even a godly jealousy. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. A wound and dishonor shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. The relationship of marriage is exclusive between the husband and the wife. And when it's broken, Proverbs tells us in verse chapter 6, verse 34, that jealousy is the rage of a man. Therefore, he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not regard any ransom, neither will he rest content, though thou givest many gifts. In the Old Testament economy and the law of adultery, it was a matter that was brought to the courts and was brought to death. It was a very serious matter. Jealousy and exclusivity. Again, careful. Don't confuse it with how some perceive the idea of jealousy. We're not speaking of envy here. We're not speaking of manipulation or controlling. We're speaking of one who values his wife and a wife who values her husband as an irreplaceable treasure with a passion and a zeal and a care that is unrelenting and exclusive. And then she goes on. This is a big deal. Love is strong. Love is exclusive. And it's jealousy. And love is as a vehement flame. You say, this is some pretty impressive love. You'd be right. This is some pretty impressive love. Look at this next part. She says, the coals thereof, this love, the coals thereof are coals of fire. It's hot. It's a flashing fire. The word here translated for coals is another place translated in your Hebrew Bibles as hot thunderbolts. It's pretty intense. The lightnings and the flashings of fire. But it's, it's, it's the, also in the idea of the coals is that it's not just a bang and gone. It's, it's, it's the flashing that continues to skip and to be there and to, and to flash and to flare like a coal does. It's not just like a lightning that's there and gone. And it says that the coals thereof are coals of fire. And then it says, which hath a most vehement flame. That phrase, most vehement flame, is very fascinating. When we translate from the Hebrew, or anytime we translate, there's, there's different approaches we come to the text. Sometimes we translate it literally, word for word. But sometimes that doesn't always convey the meaning. And so sometimes we'll take it and we'll kind of take the phrase, or instead of just taking the words and translating them, we'll translate the ideas. So for example, I've been told that um, one way that a Chinese person will tell another that they love them is to say, I love you with all of my kidneys. Did I get that right? I love you with all of my kidneys. Now, us Americans would go, what? That doesn't sound very romantic. So if we were translating it, we wouldn't translate it that way, would we? We would translate it, I love you with all of my heart, wouldn't we? Because that's the way we do it. What's interesting, the Chinese have both of them, though. They, They have their heart and their kidneys. Something to think about. Kidneys are an important part of our bodies, so you need to love your wife with all of your kidneys, too, not just your heart. You can write that on a Valentine's Day. Just don't cite me. <laughs> so translation. What's happening here is that it's not a literal translation. The most vehement fire is conveying the concept and the idea of what this fire is. Literally in Hebrew, it's one word of three words put together. Fire, fire of Yah. Yah is the poetical Hebrew form of Jehovah. So what this vehement fire is, 
this most vehement fire is, finds its source in God. Both, both translations, the most vehement fire and the fire of Jehovah would be accurate. In some translations, it's put in the margin as one or the other as an option. Because it's conveying, one, the idea and the significance of it, and one is the literal aspect of it. They're both there. This is a fire that love needs. It needs a love that is of coals of fire that are of the most vehement flame. The fire of Jehovah. This is incredible. In fact, this is not just communicated indirectly and just in passing here in the Song of Songs. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8, we read this. Well, actually, let's start in verse 7. Turn with me to 1 John. We need to see this in 1 John. 1 John is, is a book that's very much about fellowship and love and the relationship between believers and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7, it says this, Beloved, let us love one another. This is more than just marriage love. This is love just in general. This is real love. Let us love one another and catch this phrase. For love is of God. If we were to parallel this to the Song of Solomon, we would say, brethren or beloved, let us love one another. As coals of coals of fire. For love is a most vehement flame of God. Interesting, several weeks ago we spoke of God and we learned, surveying the scriptures, of how God is a consuming fire. Isn't it interesting? That the idea of him being a consuming fire is here in the Song of Solomon tied in with the concept of burning love, a most vehement flame. Brethren, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. We don't have time to finish in 1 John. We're already over time. But 1 John continues on speaking of how vital and real love is. Love is of God. So when this bride is looking to her husband and pleading with him to set me as a seal upon your heart and upon your arm. Love is strong as death. It's stronger than death, in fact. Love needs to have jealousy, an exclusivity of passion and zeal. Love needs to be hot and on fire as burning coals of fire where the source, you know, fire needs source, doesn't it? Fire needs the oxygen. Fire needs something to burn. Uh, what is the other thing it needs? It needs heat. Those three things, it's a rule of fire. We need those three things. In the aspect of love, all of those are found in God. Otherwise, it's counterfeit. Or it will flicker out. It won't be this most vehement flame. And it's got to be a most vehement flame. And she knows it's got to be a most vehement flame. She knows this seal has got to be real. This seal has got to be strong. She knows that the love has to be strong as death. And she knows, she knows that it has to be exclusive and has to be hot. Because she knows that in life there are floods that come. Look what she says in verse 7. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. She knows that in this life there are problems that are going to come, troubles that are going to come. How many marriages are broken up because of financial woes, because of illness, because of other things that threaten the relationship. And so she's looking at this relationship and she knows that there's a flood coming. She knows that there's a, a flood that will drown out love, will drown out the fake love. But if that love is hot and on fire with the real, the most vehement flame found only in God, what'd she say? Many waters cannot quench it. Many waters. You bring it on. She's not saying that. But she's recognizing that floods will come. 
Think about your own marriage, your own life. The floods do come. Little troubles, big troubles, all kinds of them. They're threatening that love. They're threatening that love. And will extinguish the love unless it is a most vehement flame. A flame that is all-consuming in God. Oh, and by the way, you think money might fix it. Isn't that interesting? Valentine's Day, flowers, jewelry, candy. I'll buy love. No, nobody ever says that. No, nobody ever says that. But, but when the flame is extinguished or having a hard time flickering and sputtering, we think that chocolate's the answer. Or the grocery store at least tells us so. We wouldn't think that. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't get your wife chocolates. I'm, don't tell anybody, but I got her some chocolates. She hasn't gotten them yet. Nothing wrong with giving your wife chocolates, giving her flowers. First Valentine's Day we celebrated, I gave her 48 of them. Nothing wrong with giving flowers. But look here. Verse 7, middle of verse 7. If a man would give all the substance of his house, all the substance of his house for love, try to buy it, all his riches, everything. I mean, think of all your treasures, everything you have. The house here is not just speaking of the house. It's speaking of everything that you have. The house is the administration of everything, wherever it's at. If you were to try to give it all for love, how would it be received? It would utterly be contempt. What's that mean? Well, we know what contempt is. It's like despising. Like, really? It, it, it's, not just wouldn't, it's not just being rejected. It's not just being ignored. It's like a, 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 a strong emotion of repulse that's there. Condemned. It's just, no. You can't do that. And so she is making two statements here. One is that you can't buy love. You can't buy love. No matter how rich you are, you can't buy love. And by making that statement, she is also declaring how valuable it is so going back to the seal, seal it, mark it, guarantee it, identify with it as you would your most prized treasure. She's saying our love is valuable. It can't be bought. So place me as a seal upon your heart and upon your arm your entire being, every part of you, I want to be a part of. This is the climax of the song. This song from the bride to her groom, crying out that she be the seal, all that he is in his life. And so in recap, the seal upon the heart, the seal upon the arm, Love is stronger than death. Jealousy is important. But we need the vehement flame. We need the most vehement flame. And we know the most vehement flame from 1 John chapter 4 is the abiding, indwelling, filling presence of God. And it's not just about, Lord Jesus, I believe when you save me. It's about that reality and relationship every single day. The source. The three things for heat. The fuel. For the fire. The fuel, the heat, and the oxygen. All of those things have to be sourced in God who is Love. She says, set me as a seal upon thine heart, as a seal upon thine arm. For love is strong as death. 
Jealousy is cruel as the grave, and the coals thereof are coals of fire, which hath the most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can the floods drown it. If a man would give all the substance of his house for love, it would utterly be condemned. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you that you loved us first so that we could love you and others. May today we know your irresistible love. Your love that is stronger than death. Your love that is more rich and for we are persuaded that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall separate us from your love which is in Christ Jesus. Lord, I pray that as husbands today and as wives we would look to you as our example of love that we would see that in you is the source of love, this kind of love spoken of here in this song. And may we day by day abide in your love so that your love can flow through us to our spouses. And not just limited to those who are married, but in our family relationships, even in our relationships where there is enmity with our enemies. Father, we need your love to fill us and flow through us. And so today we seek you, we surrender to you, we, we lay ourselves out before you. And in many respects, Father, the, the, the request of this bride here, of her groom, is our request of you. And may it not just be a one-time thing, but Lord, may this be our prayer, our desire, our passion every day and every moment of every day. We give thanks to you for your love. We praise you that you are love. And we humble ourselves under you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.